Operation Red Pill. You know us, just two guys going beyond conspiracy theories, getting right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. I'm Jason Spears with my co-host, Christopher Dean. Kaboom! Join us as we go behind enemy lines to reveal the truth about another aspect of this occult matrix. As we discuss in this week's Intel Briefing, Person of Interest, The Fallout. Does belief in a higher power and trust in Jesus actually hinder the process of science and the arts, or did the impact of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection actually propel the world into a new era of knowledge? We're going to talk about that and much more coming up right here on Operation Red Pill. Gentlemen, everyone from across the podverse, welcome back to another episode of Operation Red Pill, where we do like to take you beyond conspiracy theories and hopefully get you right into the heart of the conspiracy itself. Now, listen, I know y'all have already been on pins and needles. You've been wondering, how can these guys finish up what they started last week? They dealt with the fuse, what we got going on now. I'm here to tell you, Christopher Dean's not even out in the field. He is in recovery right now because he has been overloaded with the massive amount of information that he's had to pack into these episode notes. And so we are going to deliver it to you today. We are going to get into the vast libraries written about Jesus. We're also going to talk about how Jesus has impacted the scientific revolution, despite what many people say today. There really isn't a difference between Jesus and science. And then we're going to ease our way into the ancient religions and whether or not they may have copied key traits of Jesus. But before we get into all of that, I need y'all to do what you do best. I need you to put out the Christopher Dean call. Y'all know what it is. You got to take them one hand and the two hands, one on the left, one on the right, pop them together and say, "Woo!" you know how you do, ladies. How's it going, bro? What's happening, man? How we doing? We're doing excellent. Locked and loaded and ready to go on this episode. Yeah, yeah. You know, excellence is a high bar. It is, it is. Well, if you're doing excellent, I'm doing swell. I say we go ahead and pop it off. Don't make the people wait. All right, let's do it. Last week, bro, we talked about Jay Warner Wallace's amazing book, Person of Interest, where he takes his no-body homicide approach to uncovering the truth about Jesus. In a no-body homicide, it's very much like it sounds. It's an investigation without a body where a homicide is suspected, right? Mm-hmm. Now, he breaks down his investigation into two separate categories, the fuse and the fallout. The fuse is all the circumstances leading up to a suspected event, and the fallout is the subsequent impact of an alleged event, right? Uh-huh. So since Jesus is our person of interest, we had to look at what led up to the event of his birth, his ministry, and his death. So we ended up talking about things like the uniformity of language that would have been necessary for his message to get out, the technologies such as roads, bridges, and mail services that aided in his coming, and the connection that Jesus had with other religions that quote-unquote predated him. But this week, we're going to get into the fallout. And in the case of Jesus, did this poor carpenter from Nazareth have an impact that we can map across time and space? What do you think, man? Well, I think the short answer is yes, <laughs> he did have an impact. But I think it's important. Let's get into why exactly we think that. And okay. the, the first area of the fallout that we need to look into is what Jay Warner Wallace calls the dissemination fallout. And this fallout is about spreading the message of Jesus. 
Not only did a ridiculous amount of people hear about Jesus, but a ton of people ended up writing about him after the fact. First, we have the Christians that liked Jesus. So the early church fathers were a fairly large group of leaders in the Christian community that wrote so extensively that, did you know, if we combined all of their commentary, that we could nearly reconstruct the entire Bible if we had lost the original? Dude, that's huge. Because a lot of people talk about you can't trust the Bible because it's been diddled with, it's been edited, manipulated, and things like that. But if what you're saying is true, that almost puts a foot right in the back of the throat of people that are making that argument. Right, right. Because you would have had to change more than the text. You would have had to change all of the commentary of the early church fathers to correspond with whatever errors that you had put into the text after the fact. Exactly. Or whatever tweaks Right. You wanted to make. Right, right. I mean, this is kind of a big deal. And so, that's in an analog age. Like, you could do that in a digital age a little bit more easily. Uh-huh. It's still not going to be just a, a, you know, simple click, plug and play solution. But it's a lot easier in a digital age to make those type of massive corrections than it would be in an analog age. Right, right. Absolutely. But the broke carpenter from Nazareth that died 33 years old and only ventured a couple days from his birthplace had such an impact on the world and inspired people that never even met him to write so extensively about his existence. That's crazy. Yeah, that's wild. And and like you were saying in the information age, not just the editing the text, but the the putting it together and the, and the writing it would be a lot easier today. I mean, who hasn't tweeted or posted a reel about someone that they thought was important, right? Like everybody is doing that now. Exactly. But I would imagine that the people that are picking up a pen and paper and writing a letter and, and sending it out because they thought a particular person was so important, I guess I, I would guess that that's a much smaller amount of people. And we're not even having we're- to dip a quill into ink you know, and unroll a scroll to, to get the writing done. So right. in the early centuries, far, far less, um, I don't want to say easy, but yeah, it, was, it wasn't nearly as easy to just jot a couple things down on post-it notes and, and, and send it out to the, your neighbors. But the crazy thing is, is it wasn't just the Christians that took on this arduous task of writing extensively about Jesus. Okay, who else was doing it? Well, there's a bunch of people who weren't Christians that still liked Jesus and wrote about him as well. Now, it's not canon, it's not inspired, and sometimes they you know, took liberties with the story, but they still wrote about him nonetheless. It, it, would, be, okay. it would be akin to like, you know, if people write exaggerated stories about celebrities, you know, while the, mm-hmm. the claims that they're making might not be true, but such stories do function as additional evidence for the celebrity's existence. Right. So, so we have that. We've got the Christians that like Jesus. We have the non-Christians that like Jesus. I, I mean, all over the place. Eastern, Syria, Persia, North Africa, Turkey, Rome, and Egypt all have people throughout those nations. You know, just within a couple hundred years of Jesus had heard about him and, and decided to write about his life and story. Pretty crazy, right? It is. But then... It's not just the Christians and non-Christians that liked him. It's also a bunch of people that hated him, which is, <laughs> it's kind of comical from, from the 30,000 foot view, right? So in a time when Christians were persecuted and pursued by multiple groups, there were enough people that hated Jesus and yet still recognized his impact uh, 
that he had on the world, so much so that it caused these Jesus haters to write and detail the events of his life just like everybody else. That's, that's, that's quite an impact. That's pretty interesting. It is. There's so many Jesus haters out there that if we took all of their books, we could reconstruct every single claim of the New Testament. There's so many Jesus haters out there that if we took all of their books, we could reconstruct every single claim of the New Testament. That, that, that blows up. my mind. Yeah. So even right? though... Yeah, even though they were inflammatory works and they tried to disprove the claims and all of that, they still wrote so extensively that we could recreate all of the claims of the New Testament just by people that hated Jesus. That is dope. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. Peter Dickens in 1999 wanted to know what history had been subject of more books than anyone else. Th this, I think, is kind of cool. So using the Library of Congress, which consists of 532 miles of bookshelves and nearly 110 million volumes, he found the answer to his question. Time out. What <laughs> did you just say? The Library of Congress consists of 532 miles of bookshelves and nearly 110... Okay. <laughs> I'm done at, at that point alone. Do you understand... That is longer than getting from Columbus to Cincinnati and back. That's nuts. 532 miles uh -huh. of just bookshelves. Uh-huh. Like when you talk about, or you hear the Library of Congress, you just, I don't know, anybody else like me just kind of gets an idea of just maybe a building and it's got some books in it. It's another library. I don't think we appreciate. What were you gonna say? I was just gonna say because Congress is attached to it. I already don't like it. Right. Like this is this is just Congress's library. Like that's how I've heard it before. Pretty much, and it's probably got a whole bunch of boring stuff in it. But never did I understand just the scale of the building itself. Yeah. Five hundred thirty-two miles and over one hundred and ten million volumes. Yeah. Like the biggest library I can visually conceptualize is the one that Beast had in Beauty and the Beast. You know what's sad is I was what? thinking the exact same thing. That's right. Disney has conditioned me. <laughs> I remember as a little boy, I was watching that. I was like, one day I'm going to have a library that big. That is amazing. <laughs> you have all these books in here. I'm not going to read the books, but I definitely want a collection this size. Right. You just want to have them cover the walls. Right. And the Library of Congress is dwarfed. I mean, no, it's not Dorf. The, the the Beast Library is Dorf by the Library of Congress. Right, right. That blows my mind, especially put, I know it's a tangent here, but especially put in conjunction with the fact that Scripture says the things that Jesus did, the events of his life and the stuff that he did while he was here on the planet, mm -hmm. there's not enough space for all the books in the world to contain it. Yeah, this is a lot like, of books. Fold that <laughs> into your mind. You're like, no, I mean, it's not just a lot of books. That's not a lot of stuff he did. Yeah. That wasn't even written about. Uh -huh. We're complaining about the stuff we got. <laughs> and the stuff we got. Whew, it's messing people's lives up right now. Right, right. I'm sorry, man. I just, my nerd moment. I geeked out for a second. <laughs> 532 miles. I'm like, yo, you just spent over that. Yeah, no, no, it's cool. It's cool. I get it. But in the 532 miles of bookshelves and 110 million volumes, the number one subject of all of them, with 17,239 books written with him as the subject, is Jesus Christ. 
You know, that is utterly fascinating, man. I think Ravi Zacharias mentioned that one time where he talked about one of the things that he really wanted when he was growing up was an encyclopedia set, mm-hmm. which like shows how old he was. <laughs> and he'd been yeah. eyeing, like I think of Britannica, he'd been eyeing a set. And once he actually saved up enough money to get it, he went in and dove in and started looking at some of the subjects. And the one that took up by far the most amount of writing was on the subject of God. Okay. And we asked the person who I think had curated some of those topics, you know, why is that? The guy said, easy. There's no other subject more important that has a more significant bearing on your life than the idea or the subject of God. So I think okay. it is equally fascinating that that Jesus by far is the most searched for Google entry. Mm-hmm. And has the most written about him, even in the Library of Congress, a nation, a, a library that belongs to a nation that is dedicated to all pagan gods <laughs> and doesn't want anything yeah. to do with Jesus. Right, right. That's Wild crazy stuff. And the the closest competitor, or like the guy that comes in second, is William Shakespeare, and he only has nine thousand eight hundred and one books written about him. Oh, That's about poor half, Mister Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. Maybe if he had a longer spear. Never mind. <laughs> I digress. I'm a- so sorry. Anyway, uh, when, the, <laughs> when the search was narrowed to just women alone, the fallout of Jesus still shines through because the Virgin Mary holds the title of woman with the most books written with her as the subject. 3,595. And the next competitor wow. for... The, yeah, the next competitor for her was Joan of Arc with a merely 545 books. That's wild. It's insane. But it gets it gets crazier because now we have Google Books. You just mentioned Google. Now we have Google Books that allows us to do all the work that Dickens did, but with the most comprehensive index of full books. And this, it doesn't change the ranking, but this puts Jesus at having 109 million books written about him. Wow. Yeah. And George Washington, he comes in second uh, for, for the uh, the Google Books, and he only has fifty eight million. Again, half. I'm trying to figure out who's been writing about George Washington. <laughs> like, it, what was so fascinating that we need fifty eight million volumes? That that is pretty interesting because Hitler, I think, shows up way down the list with like two million. I would have put Hitler above George Washington any day. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would have lost money on that bet. Yeah, me too. That's crazy, crazy. But this shows us that to date, Jesus alone has impacted the writing of books more than any other person in history. But this is what you would expect if Jesus was the incarnate God. This is the fallout that you would be looking for. But beyond just knowledge, what do you think about our imaginations? Do you think Jesus has impacted the development of our very thoughts as well? Yes, because there's a lot of stuff we would like to imagine that Jesus says, don't. <laughs> so I think there's a huge impact he's had on imagination. Oh, that's In fact, funny. from like age 13 to probably about 83, he's been affecting the imagination <laughs> of men for a prolonged period of time. Uh, What's that Joe Dirt thing? Is this what you want to be doing when Jesus comes back? <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of behavior that's been changed in the imagination frontier. Okay. The imaginarium of man has been greatly affected by Christ. That's fair. That's fair. I was kind of going a different way. I meant more like. I think so. You didn't see that coming. <laughs> I that didn't way. see it coming at all. <laughs> Pardon the pun, but it, it, I just meant art. You know, and and we express art from our knowledge and our and our imagination. So it's pretty right. interesting because as soon as people stopped being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, it really allowed them to project the object of their affections into other areas. So we have painters and etchers, sculptors, architects. They all applied their craft to pay homage to Jesus Christ. So from the early centuries of the common era to the middle ages, the Renaissance all the way to modern era, Jesus is represented in every genre of art. This wow. was kind of mind boggling to me. You know, you might have expected this in the years before the scientific revolution, but not after, mm-hmm. but that's not the case. All throughout art history, every genre and every time before and after the scientific revolution, Jesus is represented. But even stranger, you might expect that this impact only took place in, in, in Europe, you know, kind of as it, it's, a, it's extension of, it's an extension of Rome, sorry. But it turns out that the Jesus fallout is everywhere in every region. Jesus was an inspirational figure to say the least. Not only was he the most inspirational figure in the West, but the most inspirational figure the world over. That is saying a lot. It is. I mean, we have, you know, like Peru, the Philippines, uh, Sri Lanka, Syria, Thailand, Japan. I mean, you name it. And Jesus has impacted the structure of art in all of those nations. That's, that's even crazier to consider when a person takes into account the idea that these regions we were just talking about were probably founded or impacted by Nephilim beings prior to the arrival of Christ on mm-hmm. the planet. Yeah. So their art should have depicted the Nephilim overlords that were influential in that region. And from a from a military perspective, if you have invaded and begin to to um, take over an area for your enemy to come in and have more impact than you did is huge. Mm hmm. Yeah. That's insane. I mean, you talk about displacing a being and displacing rulers. That's got to be scary when you can just look at a spiritual entity over a region and be like, you know, the people that you're over talk more about me than they do about you. <laughs> yeah, that's a you crazy know, if you were talking to them, You might want to go get your peoples because they talking about me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wild idea. It, it really is. And it, the crazy thing for, for me to realize is it wasn't just one moment of Jesus's life. You know, it wasn't just like they painted and sculpted, you know, say his birth or his death. But it turns out every important detail about the life of Jesus, as, at least as described by Mark, has been painted or sculpted in the earliest centuries of the common era. What do you mean? So like the, the, the miracles that he did, like it, it wasn't just the, you know, kind of a pie in the sky idea of Jesus or the fact that okay. he was born in a manger, you know, because those are the, the, the easy ideas, at least in the Western mind, to be able to, to recreate or paint. But okay. J. Warner Wallace says that 
every detail of Jesus's life, at least described by in the gospel of Mark, all of those events were painted and sculpted in the earliest centuries of the common era or, you know, Anno Domini. Okay. Yeah. I'm guessing they were sculpted by famous people then too. Oh, they were. Yeah. I mean, I mean, not all of them were super famous, but yeah, famous people, you know, the masters in the art didn't get away with, didn't get away from the impact either. You know, I think we have, so you don't, you don't hear that a lot, like in art history classes, because if you're going to talk about like a Leonardo or Michelangelo or Rembrandt or Van Gogh or things like that, their uh-huh. principal works are not ones that directly depict Jesus Christ. Right. So it's not even formed in the mind of students like that this artist was impacted by this this divine being. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. I think that they probably cherry-picked all of the work around Jesus. Ah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, because I had no idea. When I was going through this book, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I didn't know exactly all- what I'm feeling when you're talking about this. <laughs> I didn't know the Ninja Turtles painted Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> what was Donatello working on this? Right, Man, right. The sewer probably has a whole bunch of pictures of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, and it, I think it's harder to believe, too, because we live in a time when so many Christian products or expressions of a biblical worldview are so poorly done. Right? Right. Yeah. Like, I, know, I, that's I mean, always my critique of, like, Christian films. Yeah. I mean, what do we have? The Chosen now is, like, the only... I don't want to say the only one worth watching, but the only one that has the production value on par with, with the other things that we're looking at. Yep. But in the, in the past, that wasn't the case. I would suspect, and, and this is a slight tangent, but I, I would suspect that the fundamentalist movement of the 1920s had, had a huge impact on the masters of, of art or the experts of art not being Christians because Christians were told to pull out of everything that wasn't salvation based, right? If it's not saving people, then we can't do it as Christians. Well, that has, you know, the engineers, the editors, the screenwriters, the sculpt, you know, all of them. Well, I can't do this because it's all secular. You know what, dude? No, that's a wild idea because as I'm thinking back, I I can't remember exactly when motion pictures started, but I think it was around the 1920s that you had, you know, silent pictures. Okay. And if that was the case, it would be fascinating to think that one of the most impactful platforms for social conscious development was being developed at the same time that the church was being told to vacate social discussion. That's interesting. Right? Like, imagine if the church had still been involved if, if the fundamentalist movement had not been as successful as it was and the church had remained involved in social discourse, mm-hmm. how impactful it may have been on even the motion picture industry. Yeah. And all of the power that that industry holds today. Power which one could really argue they only were able to achieve because the church vacated its position of power. Right, right. They gave up the that, ground. That's, that's crazy. They broke the rules of engagement. Mm-hmm. But we'll talk that's about insane. that. That's insane. <laughs> but, you know, think about it. Why Jesus? If he wasn't who he said it was, how did he have such an impact on the creative expression of the world? You know, b- before 1920. 
You know, look at That's all of the question. all of the other deities that we mentioned in the last episode. You know, you take Mithras, Zoroaster, Hercules, Krishna. They all had hundreds of years head start on Jesus, and nowhere near the cultural artistic impact that Jesus had. Like that's crazy. And he only had thirty three years yeah. on the scene. Mm-hmm. Like all the stuff that's being written about him for the most part is consisting of the the time he was on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's wild. Yeah, it's insane. It's it's almost it almost sounds impossible if if it wasn't true. You know what I mean? Right, right. Like you couldn't tell me that any other person that only lived for thirty three years was able to impact global culture and art more than the the Nephilim kings that predated him. Right? Like that's exactly. It, it's it's nuts to wrap your mind around. I have a a quote here by Dennis Willard. He said today. From the countless paintings, statues, and buildings, from literature and history, from personality and institution, from profanity, popular song, and entertainment media, from confession and controversy, from legend and ritual, Jesus stands quietly at the center of the contemporary world, as he himself predicted. And I mean, I, that's what that we're from? seeing. Dallas Willard? Okay. You said Dennis Willard. I know who that was. I said Dennis? You did. Wow. My I bad. You, it doesn't even look like a spectacles. dentist. <laughs> I might need to get That's what it I'm changed. Saying. Right. Oh, geez. Sorry about that, bro. But, but this. Dallas Willard, isn't he the creator of The Chosen? That's Dallas Jenkins. See, now I got my Willards and my Jenkins mixed up because <laughs> you messed up my Dennis's and my Dallas's. Okay, we're all confused here. It's a lot of information to sort through. You, you gotta have true. a little bit of grace. <laughs> but the people come to us knowing that we know the difference between a Dennis, a Dallas, a Willard, and a Jenkins. If we can't get those straight, the rest yeah, man, of the episode is in question. We're in trouble. <laughs> exactly. So for the people listening, who is Dallas Willard? Dallas Willard was a, an American philosopher born in 1935. He died about 2013. Okay. But this takes us to the next art form, music. Jesus also shows up in music, just as he had shown up in all the other forms of art. Now, it began with the hymns, singing and declaring the majesty of who Jesus was, similar to other art forms, but now heard in crystal clear clarity. The same Jesus that is being sung about all throughout the history of music. Hmm. The story wasn't contorted and twisted to fit the life, the morals, or the culture of the various nations. Because that's another interesting thing. If you've impacted other nations, you would think that, you know, you talk about the the distortion and the and the twisting and the changing of the stories, but that wasn't the case. Okay. Jesus and, and his message stayed strong as it traversed the the various nations that birthed the different art forms and the music. Interesting. The truth and the reality of who Jesus is has been captured in the art all over the world. That's interesting because his his um, his likeness that's captured all over the world is not always the same. This so is true. When it comes it, to music, they don't change who he is. But when it comes to to depictions of Christ, it tends to change based on the cultural environment. That is interesting. Do, do, you, do you have a, a reason why you think that is? 
Or you just think it's an interesting note? <laughs> well, both. I, I, I do have a reason that I think that that happens, but I also think it is an interesting little caveat. Um, I think that it goes towards obscuring the true identity of who Christ is. Okay. And I mean, that on, on several different levels. First off, from an ethnic perspective, you know, who the actual Jewish people were. Okay. You can't have a Chinese Jesus. You can't have a Mexican Jesus. You can't have a quote unquote black Jesus, if you will. You can't have a white Jesus. You need to have a an ethnically accurate Jesus. And coming from that section of the world, it would be way more ethnically accurate that Jesus was dark skinned and not European in his construct. You know, the blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus that we see today that predominates most of the world as the universal expression, which pretty much is the Catholic version of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's an accurate one. And I think it obscures his identity. And I think that has a subsequent impact on people's ability to really relate in, in truth to who Jesus actually is. And I think his identity is important. Okay. I don't think it's one that we should just skip by. You know, some people will say, well, if he's God of everybody, what does it matter what he looks like? It matters. Just okay. like it matters what you and I look like. But then a there's point. a spiritual aspect for why I think obscuring his identity is there. And oftentimes, you know, we've talked about this on this show before, the pagan nature of all of the non-Christian religions, right? The ones that mm -hmm. are not centered on Yahweh, how they have their roots back in Babylon. Yeah. And they're built off the idea of father God, mother God, and a son of God. And oftentimes to depict the son of God, you would put a halo around the head of that deity and that halo would shine, but it also would represent the son, not just the son as far as a genealogy, like the offspring of a mother and father, but son is in a solar, a solar body. Okay. Like a sun God, which is exactly that's where I was going to go. Gotcha. Exactly. And so we see this a lot of times depicted over certain deities. We also see it as a depiction over presidents. You know, I remember mm. there was a Time Magazine article with uh, Obama that had that whole ring around him. Interesting. And at first you are, you're like, is that a glare? Like, is that a lens flare? What, what, what are we doing here? Uh-huh. And it's an it's a artistic homage back to the sun god, which has its roots in the Babylonian story of Nimrod, Semiramis, and Talmuz. Okay. And this floods the world as a universal epic story that gets rebranded based on the certain cultures that it's from. Jesus stands a stark contradiction to that. And so I think it would be very, very tactically uh, critical if you want to obscure who he is to fold his image and identity into the pagan architecture and symbolism that's already been set up. So that way you can hijack the message if you want to. Interesting. That, that's, that's a crazy thought, bro. Yeah, I have them from time to time when I've been left <laughs> to my own devices is what they don't let me talk for. No, that, that, that one's going to fester a little bit. That's interesting. That's funny. I like it. I like it. But going, going back to the, uh, the show... <laughs> Right, right. Uh, I think hymns are special in the fact that words carry meaning. 
So, you know, much more meaning can be had or can be wrapped up in songs about Jesus. You know, just think about the songs written about Jesus taken solely from the Old Testament Psalms. Without even appealing to the New Testament manuscripts, using Old Testament writings of the coming Messiah, we can bridge the, gla- the gap and declare that the poor carpenter is exactly who we've been waiting for. That's exciting. Well, because he fulfills the, the Old Testament prophecies. He, sorry, he fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. So if, if we're writing, I mean, because if we're writing songs taken purely out of the Old Testament and they clearly are depicting the person that Jesus was, then even if we didn't have the New Testament manuscripts and there's a bunch of other people outside of the New Testament manuscripts that wrote about Jesus, we would be able to figure out who he was and that he is the Messiah. Does that that make sense? That did. That was way better than the first one I got. I was looking (laughs) for my crickets button. Well, I didn't know when you wanted to jump in and be like, yeah, but so I, yeah. Well, I was still trying to follow the train of thought. Okay. You gotta forgive me though, man. I'm still recovering from being sick, so I'm still no, trying a- to get my mental faculties sped <laughs> back up to where you're used to. No, it's all right. Maybe, maybe I just didn't didn't phrase it right. That, that's fair. I got a couple cylinders that ain't firing right today. <laughs> um, it, it's that's that's funny. <laughs> Sorry, I was just what? thinking that your brain was misfiring. Me with cylinders. Yeah, no, <laughs> you have no idea, dude. That was half the reason there was that joke earlier that went far left. Yeah. <clears throat> Did you know I took a, a history of Western music class in college? No. Yeah, I did. I think it was actually one of the first classes that I took. I didn't in know fact, you went to college. Yeah. Sorry, the, I don't know why this hit me all of a sudden. Um, the first class I ever took on campus was history of Western music, and I show up, and everyone in class is waiting for the professor to to you know show up and teach the the, the class, and he. He, it's not funny. He died like that morning. Wait, you're not supposed to chuckle when you deliver that news. I know. It's just, it's so bizarre. Like it's hard to find a, uh, a folder to put it in. So some other, um, somebody else that worked for the college came in and he's like, you know, I know you're looking for this person, but I'm sorry to inform you, but they passed away and we don't have anyone to teach your class. And we all kind of sat there and we're like, is this a morbid joke? Like, because now we have a person at the head of the class. So it was so bizarre. And he's like, no, I'm serious. Go home. No, we have to find someone else to teach this class. Really, really bizarre. And that was my, that was my first experience at college. Yeah. That's, that's wow. But we finally got, uh, another professor, Dr. Yuri Bortz, awesome guy. Uh, and he was able to teach the rest of the class, but it was interesting to me to see how much of global music, um, owes itself to the the classical Western music. Okay, what do you mean? Um, well, so many of the modern facets of music we take for granted are actually born out of the sacred Jesus-centered music of the classical world. So, for okay. instance, Jesus followers led the way in moving from things like pure memorization, uh, monophony, acapella, the modal system, 
uh, sacred and royal exclusivity because originally in, in Western music, it was all sacred. Like there, there wasn't branches of secular music, which is almost hard to imagine. And I, some of that is due to the control of Catholicism's control over music. But it was well. I was going to say that because it started out with hymns and then Gregorian chant and all of that type of stuff, right? Before moving into more modern expressions that we know, like pop, rock, jazz, gospel, blues, all of that type of stuff, right? But before we got into those particular genres, we had musical notation, harmonization, instrumentation, major and minor scales, you know, popular accessibility. All of those came from from Jesus followers. See, that's interesting because I would have thought they all, I'm not, I, w- I would have thought, I was taught that a lot of the people who had significant impact on music at this point was coming mm-hmm. from secular people, primarily like mathematicians. What, like Pythagoras, maybe? Well, you, you've got like your, you got Pythagoras as being an influencing factor, but like take Beethoven, for example. Mm-hmm. For Beethoven to be able to write what he did, the most fascinating thing about his writings is the fact that he was deaf. Right, right. And so he orchestrated it based on mathematical notations. Okay, that's interesting. And I'm getting this, though, from a secular educational system. So, of course, they're not going to teach me the other side of this that we're bringing up. But I'm just pointing out a lot of what I was taught was basically the fact that mathematicians had a huge impact on music. Oh, I'm sure that they did. I mean, because music... But it was delivered is, primarily from a mathematical perspective. Okay, I gotcha, I gotcha. No, as far as I understood it, at least from the course that I took, that it had moved from purely sacred music to, I, I, I'm not going to have the composer, J.S. Bach or Mozart, or one of the big names, was the first person to, he took just the the rigid structure of the sacred songs. And he was like, well, let's have fun with this. So he took it and he changed it and made it more, I mean, quote unquote, enjoyable. Okay. But that was the, the introductory in, introduction into like secular music expression, that it didn't all have to be sacred, that we can have fun with it and we can do some other things. And then very, very quickly, you know, let out to other people going, oh, we can do this? <laughs> you know, right, you got like people like the fugue in D minor. I don't know if it's in D minor, but the fugue, uh, the way that that was written, like everything's played. It's a scale layered on top of another scale on top uh-huh. to make this huge song, which is really fascinating in its own right. But it's not necessarily sacred. Right. Right. Yeah. So so once once her, terrible analogy, once Pandora's box was opened. Mm-hmm. Then everyone started, not everyone, but all of these people started picking up music and, and going, oh, well, we can do all kinds of stuff with it. Now, one right, of the most interesting. have fun here. Right, right. One of the most interesting pieces of music, and I actually, it's so funny that my professor, Yuri Bortz, he wrote his dissertation for his doctorate degree on the well tempered clavier. I didn't know this. I'm sorry, what? So Your clavicle is tempered. <laughs> Johann that Seb- doesn't sound like a musical instrument. <laughs> Johann Sebastian Bach, he wrote a piece of music called the Well Tempered Clavier. And it was for the instrument, okay. the clavier, and written in every single key. And we were supposed to pick 
what like the the big report that we had to do at the end of class was to pick a piece of classical music and you know do a report on it say why it was important what its impact was mm-hmm. and i missed it i had no idea that this is what the dude had wrote his dissertation on and i had one okay. paragraph that referenced the fact that that was this was the only piece of music at the time that was written in every single key and he gave me a decent grade. I think he was way too lenient because then he pulls me aside and we have this exhaustive conversation on what the well-tempered clavier was and how it impacted music. And none of that was in my report. Okay. So what it was is it was actually changing the structure of music as we know it. At least in, in the Western world, which is now, I mean, almost the 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 normative um framework that we take music from now but the notes that we use the di- the spaces between the notes that we use is mm-hmm. not how it shows up in nature really yeah because music is kind of intertwined into the physics of the universe which i cannot explain to you i can explain how some of the things or that some of the things happen but not exactly why so for instance pythagoras we mentioned him in mathematics he's known um like for striking his, his, his hammer or whatever. And he strikes his hammer and it makes such a loud sound that then the harmonies, the natural harmonies begin to echo into the universe, right? And not just like in the cosmos, but you can hear them. If you play a singular tone loud enough, the harmonies of that will, will come through and be audible to, to anyone around, which just is insane, right? No, it, tends, it makes sense. Okay, it, 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 it's kind of a little bit of a mind like, warp for me. I'm not that smart. Uh-huh. I'm not that smart, but it makes sense from two different perspectives. Number one, it makes sense from a string theory perspective. Okay. Like if everything quantumly is attached and vibrating, then there's there's noise mm. or sound, there's notes that are being made. Okay. Um, resonant frequencies, everything seems to have that. That's why when an opera singer sings at a certain note, they can break a glass. Okay. Makes sense. But if we if everything is based on energy and energy is basically vibration, mm-hmm. whether we're talking electromagnetic radiation, we're talking sound, visual light spectrum, all of that are, are wavelengths and wavelengths represent vibration. Vibration represents sound. So everything's emitting a sound because everything emits a frequency. Even emotions can be based on frequency. Okay which is how we can get emotional manipulation. If it's based on a frequency, then it's based on a note. So everything is making noise on some level. Okay. So I can buy it from that perspective, you know, the whole idea that nature would respond back. But I'm sure there's a way more developed theory out there that helps explain all of this. Yeah, yeah. But no, I like the way that you had it it, because it makes sense. But it also means that those frequencies, the actual spacing between notes is set up in nature. Right. Okay. And okay. this was this was the way that we tuned our instruments prior to Johann Sebastian Bach. But the problem with it is because they're all not random, but they don't stack on top of one one another very well. Because now, if you play, you can play a scale at, at one octave, and you can play a scale at another octave, and it sounds beautiful, right? Right. The same scale. The same scale. Yeah. You know, it okay. adds depth and and. I mean, you can't really say color because it's a sound, but you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. With 
um, just intonation, which is the intonation, the spacing between notes that happens in nature, you couldn't do that. You couldn't layer octaves on top of one another because they were they were offset enough that it it they were dissonant sounds and they um, were in competition with one another instead of complementing one another. Okay. So Johann Sebastian Bach wrote a piece of music where he tempered. He actually changed the notation that so every octave was complementary. Okay. Which is why he I'm wrote it. Yeah, in every single key. And he's like, look, I, I have this idea that we can change the tuning and it can completely alter the way that we write and play music. And it works. And that's what the well-tempered clavier was. And I was like, I did not know it. Like he gave me a B and I'm like, I should have failed because I had no idea what this piece of music did. But this, this 12 note tempered system is how all of Western music is written now. That's fascinating. Yeah. Like the idea that it. these scales have spaces and that things can be adjusted or tweaked, mm -hmm. I think is absolutely amazing. Like as, as a fellow musician, like I'm a drummer first. And so I don't have to deal a lot with tuning. I mean, you can tune drums and you can tune mm -hmm. them to certain frequencies. But for the most part, you can just tune them to this sound that you want. Or not necessarily okay. a particular note, unless that's what you, you want to do. Some of these other instruments, they require more precise tuning, mm -hmm. which I wasn't really familiar with outside of maybe seeing a guitarist tune their instrument and use a tuner. And I'm like, what are you doing? Well, sometimes these strings get out of whack, so you just got to tighten them up or loosen them mm -hmm. so that they're in tune. That's as much as I knew about it. Okay. I didn't know that there was a full scale developed, that that scale had been tweaked so that there are incremental spaces that are evenly matched in between. Yeah. I, I find that super fascinating, especially when it's combined with these ideas. This is going to be a huge tangent, by the way. But when it's combined with the idea that music can be used as a key to unlock structures. Like, I don't know if you've ever heard this idea. Okay. That you can unlock, you can manipulate nature using frequencies. This is the fundamental idea. Okay. Well, I mean, and I've heard seems, like emotion and things like that, but I, I'm not sure to what well, degree what you're actually say. talking. Okay. Well, it's, it seems like a preposterous idea until we look at some of the other ways that, that things can be manipulated with frequencies. Mm -hmm. Like the whole way that we communicate, cell phones, radio waves, all of that is frequency-based. Okay. But you can also manipulate people by frequencies and it's believed that in the ancient world, you could open up portal portals into the spiritual world using frequencies, particular music, particularly musical notes. OK. And that seems wild until you also consider the fact that music nowadays is used to unlock portals inside of people. OK. Like the occult has talked often about how they use syncopated rhythms to put people in trances. Right. Okay. And how that's a, that's a different shift that's opened up a portal into a person's subconscious and shifting their, their conscious state from one, from one sounds redundant from one state to another. Mm -hmm. Right. But we you use music in order to do that. 
the fact that you can change a person's biorhythm based on the bass that you use as far as the power and the frequency of the bass. If okay. you want to make a person depressed, you can lose, you can use a lower tuned bass. You know, you drop that 808. Mm-hmm. That's real popular in, in hip hop and in trap music. Okay. But it also changes the emotional state of things. Interesting. If it's possible to manipulate nature and people using a musical system, then the spacing between the notes that the system is built on seems to be very important. Yeah. If music is derived from Yahweh and is expressed through his creation and his arch enemy was a musical aficionado, a savant, if you will, and he's fallen, Mm -hmm. It makes me think that the music he's produced serves a greater purpose than just getting feet to tap to the floor. It has to okay. shift things. Right? That's interesting. Yeah. So, so and it also let me expand this like Okay, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. No, you 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 can go. Well, I was going to say if we expand the idea a little bit more, we know from scripture that Satan had musical instruments built right into his body. Mm-hmm. We also know that when beings fall, their structure changes. When we fail as a race, our structure changed. Our body does not operate the same way that it used to. Okay. I think it's safe to say that when Satan fell, his body changed as well. If he had musical notes built into his being, I'm sure. Man, didn't nobody tell Google to talk? See, Google trying to take <laughs> over the conversation. It's like you're but, onto something good. Shut up. <laughs> right. Straight interrupted me. But if he if he had those no, those instruments built into his being and they were based on certain note spacing, a certain musical system that was based mm-hmm. on divine order, him being a being that now was in an eternal rebellion and that will be reflected in his body, it should reflect chaos now. Meaning the musical system that he produces should not be in order with the one that God originally designed. That's interesting. So if if... If that corrupted musical system is the one that that is called just intonation or the one that shows up in nature, then that would make sense why the this, the different octaves don't complement one another. They can flip. Especially if we consider that nature is currently in a fallen state. That's crazy. So, so in its original creation, I think we could speculate that nature probably did function with prop with natural intonation that was evenly spaced and was harmonically succinct. That's and there crazy. Was no chaos or dissonance. Because when when JS Bach changed the tuning, what he did is he it looks like he corrected the the scales as it were. So so for instance, the minor second in a particular scale for that shows up naturally should show up at 111.73. He adjusted okay. it to 100. The major okay. second, 203.91. He changed it to 200. So he he it looks like he adds order to what what is chaotic and disordered. I, I think you might really be onto something there. That's crazy. And then that's how you then you can stack octaves and you can have these higher and lower scales and forms of music complement one another instead of conflict with one another. And if you were saying that it is used to open portals, 
then could it be when all of nature suffered sin and decay that the separation in heaven and earth, the, the, the music that allowed the natural intonation that allowed heaven and earth to coincide in one space was fractured. And that's what caused the, the, the dimensional vibe. Or one of the things that is attri- attributed in that separation is this, this key has been fractured. I would think so. I think a great visual representation of that uh, in all places would probably be Spider-Man into the Spideyverse. Because that okay. whole thing was dealing with this multiverse thing. If uh-huh. you were in the wrong multiverse, you would glitch. Right? You, you, weren't, you weren't in harmony with the dimension that you were in. And so there was chaos. There was there was dissonance, right? There was distortion in all of your your energy and all of your vibes, your frequency. You were out of sync. And I think that's probably what's happening here. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, my brain is exploding, right? Because we talk we talk all the time about what it means that all of creation longs for the sons of God, right? All of creation longs to be set right. Exactly. And the Bible says that we are to take the message of Jesus Christ to all of creation, not just people. Right. And we've sat and contemplated over what do what does the gospel message have to offer, you know, a turtle or the trees or if music is a part of creation, what in the world does the gospel message have to offer music? But this is an excellent example of that. J.S. Bach, a follower of Jesus Christ, was able to add order to a mu- a natural music system that had was bound to sin and decay. So taking Jesus, the gospel message, and applying it to the structure of music realigned that. It has affected all the music that has been played in the Western world since. That's insane. My mind is blown up over <laughs> you, dude. Because I was just thinking, okay, so if somebody listening to us was just like bored out of their mind, like what in the world are they talking about? This whole music and nature thing. Uh huh. Scripture backs us up on the idea that music is a part of nature, even the parts that we don't think. Okay. And you get this directly when Jesus talked about if people wouldn't praise him, the rocks would cry out. Oh. How do rocks cry out? That's nuts. As far as I'm concerned, a rock is a non-sentient thing. How how is it gonna cry or yell or scream or sing? Right. Out. And then how can it do it in praise? Like you mean That's to tell me crazy. on some level a rock is a conscious thing or that there exists some measure of conscious awareness in something as 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 simple as a rock to the point that it could praise its creator? Yo, I don't know what forces we talk about dealing with you. That's <laughs> yeah. mind-boggling. That's but it would insane. seem to suggest that the very forces of nature are not only under God's control, but also recognize their creator. It also seems to imply that there is life in everything. And I don't mean this from a pantheistic perspective that God is in all things. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if the creator created things, then his essence is in those things. Okay. And if he is the source of life, then on some level, there is his essence or life in those things. Okay. And if all things are supposed to praise him, then even the things that we don't think of as animate or sentient still praise. And if they're praising, they have to make a noise. 
Interesting. That's a note. Yeah. It's a it's a frequency. It's a note. Huh. I won't go as far as to say it's music. I'm going to say it's a cacophony of noise. <laughs> but just from a technical perspective, it still would constitute that. Yeah. And I think that's a wild idea. Yeah, that's insane. Man, how did we get all, all the way out here? What in the heck were we talking about? <laughs> we were talking about the impact that Jesus followers, or specifically the fallout of Jesus Christ, what he had on the arts, in particular the music industry. So yeah, we're not way, nice. way off, but that's, yeah, that's that's crazy. I'm almost mad we have the rest of the show to do. Cause <laughs> right, because I would have finished talking about music. Right, right. Well, there's more about music because it wasn't just the development of music and old people, right? That um, okay. who were impacted by the Jesus fallout. Modern artists, even in our science-driven uh, society, have sung about Jesus in one way or another. Eminem, like who? No, yeah. we didn't even talk about Jesus. You would know better than I would. <laughs> I didn't put him on this list. <laughs> well, Jay Warner Wallace has an extensive list, and I didn't have time to re to listen to all of the music by all of the artists. But in one way or another, Eminem, The Eagles, Rolling Stones, Run DMC, Ed Sheeran, Janis Joplin, Snoop Dogg, The Notorious B.I.G., and Neil Young have all sung about Jesus in one way or the one way or the other. Interesting. Yeah. Now they didn't all like him. But still, his existence has had an impact on their songwriting. No other person in gotcha. history has had that type of impact the way Jesus has. No other, no other villains, heroes, politicians, leaders, or any other ancient gods have had the profound impact on the world like Jesus. He's literally everywhere. And not just in like a mystic, you know, quantum idea, but he has impacted so much of the world culture. It's, it's insane. That's wild. But then if we move forward to like um, modern forms of art, not as a genre, but the motion picture industry, right? Something that wasn't okay. necessarily available to Nero. Even from the early days, people began putting Jesus on the big screen. In 1897, Albert Kirchner filmed La Passion du Christ, while Mark uh, Kylas and Abraham Elgers, they created the Horitz Passion Play. No other religious figure has inspired as many screenplays. It almost gets, I don't want to say annoying, but it's redundant. Like no other figure, no other whatever has the impact. But I mean, there's, there's not another way of putting it. No other religious figure has inspired as many screenplays as Jesus of Nazareth. This doesn't even include the movies that project a Christian worldview, just movies that are about Jesus himself. You know, it's funny. You were saying how annoying that gets. All I can see is a picture of like Michael Jackson when he was winning all of these Grammys for, for Thriller. Uh-huh. And all the stuff, all the records that Thriller broke. And like one night, I think he got like 15 Grammys or something. Okay. Like enough that he couldn't hold them all and he needed an assistant. <laughs> Okay. And I can see Jesus coming up like on Grammy night for the universe. And you're like, no other person has impacted music. Oh, thank you. No other person has impacted art. Thank you. No other person has impacted motion picture. Thank you. Jesus, do you, do you need any more Grammys? Like, I don't think you can hold anymore. That's funny. But one of these, uh, 
One of the movies, the Jesus film, it's actually been translated in 1,800 languages. That's wild, man. I remember my dad used to watch that film a lot when I was a kid. Oh, really? I've never even seen it. You haven't? Uh Uh-uh. It's not my favorite Christian film, but it's a super popular one. Okay. We used to watch it all. He used to play it all the time. And, you know, I'd be forced to watch. I say forced to watch because I wanted to watch TV and that's what was on. (laughs) Okay. Okay. But I've seen it enough that when I have to envision the Bible, that's what plays in my head. Interesting. I I don't even have. Yeah, I don't think I've. If I've seen it, I didn't know what it was. Yeah, maybe I'll see if I can get you a copy of it, man. You can watch it one time just so you can have the experience. That would be cool. That would be cool. But Jesus has impacted movies so much that we wouldn't even need a single New Testament document to reconstruct the story of Jesus. It stands alone in the motion picture industry. And I thought this was interesting because we do the film, the film over your eyes show segment. You know, and we see in uh, these fictional stories time and time again, they reproduce aspects of Jesus' character, although it's inverted. So even in all mm-hmm. of these movies that we do a breakdown, Jesus has had an impact impact on their development. Right. It's it, it, it's 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 crazy. But before we move on, let's consider this particular objection. And, and Jay Warner Wallace brings this up in his book. There isn't enough ancient non-Christian information about Jesus. He says, if you include the non-canonical text, there are nearly twice as many non-Christian voices as Christian voices in the period preceding the Edict of Milan. In addition, the ancient sources we have for the life and ministry of Jesus are more reliable and were written much earlier than the sources we have for the life of, say, Tiberius Caesar, the emperor of Rome who ruled during the latter part of Jesus' lifetime. Some of these sources, like Tacitus, report on both men. If we have enough information to have knowledge about Tiberius Caesar, then we have enough information to have knowledge about Jesus. So it's not just an invention it's not just this crazy idea that's permeated all of these things. It is a real person. And we have every reason by every metric that we measure historical documents and historical fact that he was real. And it's crazy that this real person has had such an unreal impact on the world. I don't know what you're talking about, man, because Bill Maher said he's not 10 years old. And have time to believe in, in, the, in the guy up in the sky. And I've heard enough people kind of make that lowbrow straw man attack. You know, Jesus uh-huh. is this mythical figure. And if he's real, then the God he said he served, his daddy is definitely mythical. Which is going to put question back on the fact of whether or not he's real. Interesting. And here you are, point after point after point just nailing, putting nails in the coffin of that argument. Right, right. Yeah, so so grateful. I, I think we've been lied to, dude. For sure. For sure we yeah. have. Like, I, I think the the um, the first video that I watched that, that had Jay Warner Wallace, it was like, how did we miss this? And that's exactly how I felt. Like, it seems so blatantly obvious, but it's never presented this way. You know, that, like we said, if you take Picasso and Rembrandt and all of those, their most popular works are cherry-picked to avoid the reality that every single one of those masters at one time or another, for some reason, thought it important to paint Jesus Christ or to sculpt Jesus Christ. That's crazy. 
I got to put it in musical terms again. Okay. Jesus Christ is the most sampled artist of all time. <laughs> no, that's good. I like that. I like that. I think it's a t-shirt. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be a shirt. All right. That'd be cool. I'm about it. I- I'll start working on it. That's funny. But I mentioned going to college. So how, if at all, do we think that Jesus has impacted the education of the world? And this one's going to make a lot of people unhappy. Well, a lot of people that don't like Jesus unhappy. So Michael Ramsey says, if there be a creator and if truth be one of his attributes, then everything that is true can claim his authorship and every search for truth can claim his authority. That's a big claim, but Mm -hmm. I I think it holds up. So most of us in the world today would think that Jesus and Jesus followers have had no significant impact on science and education. In fact, the accusation today is that Christ followers are actually impeding scientific discovery and not helping it. Right. So is this a fair complaint or just a cop-out to dismiss Jesus? What do you think? I think it's a flat out cop out. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, there are so many, uh, uh, what do they call it? Nobel Peace Prize winners. People who have, who have contributed to science in, in a great manner that are professing followers of Jesus Christ. There's no way you could you could legitimately draw a line of distinction to say science and faith in Jesus Christ are categorically separate and are axiologically just opposed to each other. You you can't make that defense. It's not a credible defense at all. In fact, what's wild to me is the fact that a a honest pursuit of science and scientific intrigue is not only authorized by the Bible. It points you to the creator. Mm -hmm. It takes you right to his feet. It does. There's no way they're as separate and as opposed to one another as we've been taught. I'm sorry. Well, I should know better this, than to, to ask you these questions, because as you have summarized the entire next segment of the show. No, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. Oh, Christopher, <laughs> no, it this was is great. your fault, It man. was great. It was great. That, that's a tape. Let's get into exactly why everything that Jason just said. <laughs> Is is so important. That's so funny. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh, I'm geez. sorry, man. I be trying not <laughs> to step on the toes. <laughs> no, because you mentioned the the Nobel Prize winners, and I was like, shoot, I need to look up that specific. And as I'm scrolling through, you're just hitting every single point. I was like, man, I, I, I wonder why you paused. How do you do I all that? Thought your screen froze. <laughs> you did because you kept looking down. I was like. uh, uh, I'm gonna keep talking until the screen kicks back in. <laughs> and I saw your shoulders move. You started chuckling. I was like, "What is he laughing at?" I haven't said uh, nothing crazy. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, Jesus taught that his followers were to follow and serve Jesus with their minds, which highlights one of our favorite books: "Love the Lord with All Your Mind" or "Love Your God with All Your Mind" by uh, J.P. Moreland. But to engage right. the world and worship by use of intellectual and rational abilities. This is something that Jesus expected. Not just like, ah, eh, it's kind of a good idea, but this is what you're supposed to do. And the early, the, I would say genuine Christ followers, like the thinking believer, they did this. Mm-hmm. 
unfortunately, in ways uh, a lot greater than their modern day counterparts. Like today is is kind of a, I think because of the fundamentalist movement that we talked about, you know, we've kind of escaped all of the the intellectual prowess that that Jesus actually told us to have. So the earlier or the early followers of Jesus were considered people of the book, realizing the importance of the information found within the pages of the manuscripts, safeguarding intellectual property became part and parcel to the early followers of Jesus. We as Christians are called to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations. And as we said before, to all of creation. And this became a problem for those Christians when they came into contact with people without language. So if Jesus is important and we need to tell people and show them the written works of the, the apostles, how do we, how were they able to do this with people that have no written language? Uh, or, okay. They didn't have written language. Wasn't that they, they didn't have language, right? They didn't have written language or they spoke a language different than, than the, the particular Christians. Okay. Sorry, maybe I wasn't clear about that. But just a couple examples on how the early Christians dealt with this would be with the Goths and the the Slavic peoples. So at the time, they had no written language, which meant that they couldn't read as well, right? (laughs) Okay. Like, I mean, it it sounds obvious, but it's important to know. So in both cases, missionaries created specific alphabets for these people groups and taught them to read. Also, they could read and have an opportunity to choose Jesus. To this day, really? yeah, yeah, like education and learning how to think and and and, and functioning at, at maximum capacity is something that the early church was really all about. But Man, we have fallen away. We really, really have. Like we don't want to. We we uh, barely. I don't want to say we. The the contemporary Western church has a hard time having answers, let alone being willing to structure and translate these answers into a created language for people that don't have it. Like there's so many steps ahead of just where we're trying to clamor to right now. Yeah, that's crazy. Because nowadays we'll rely on Google and AI to do that type of work. And it's Mm -hmm. not even going to be for proselytizing. Yeah. It's we not, just wanted it's, to close it's sad. the communication gap. Mm-hmm. To this day, more than 2 million people in more than 100 languages use the Cyrillic alphabet, and it was created by St. Cyril to teach the Slavs how to read. Are you, are you serious? Yeah. I had no idea. Like the Cyrillic, I go back to Transformers. Like the Cyrillic alphabet is all the buttons you don't use on a calculator. <laughs> like that's okay. what it looks like. Okay. <laughs> but I had no idea that it was created by uh Saint Cyr. I didn't even know it was named after a person. Yeah. That's also he wild. could Yeah, so he could educate people groups to just give them an opportunity to know and choose who Jesus was. Is. But here, Christopher, here's what's crazier. You take those same nation states that come from Slavic people who have a system of communication built off of the Cyrillic alphabet, and most of them are atheistic. Really? Yeah. 
take like Eastern Europe, take Russia, for example. Okay. You know, we, we got a Russian contact. They fill me in on certain things that I need to know about <laughs> what's going on with our Slavic brothers. Okay. And um, Christianity is, a, is a, a hugely oppressed state over there. It's a hugely oppressed religion because as a geopolitical state, they claim to be atheistic. And they wouldn't even be able to say that they were atheistic without the language that was given to them by Christ followers. Well, at least not, they wouldn't be able to write it down in books. Okay, that's fair. They could say that's it. That's fair. Yeah. But if they were going to preserve it for generations to come, they need to write it down. And the reason they can do that is strictly because Christian missionaries, I, I'm supposing, came and helped structure an alphabet for them. Yeah. According to what you presented today. Uh-huh. Yep. That's wild. It's crazy. I mean, it's, just to show the chess match, chess match that goes back and forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I think it shows that we, we really need to step our game up. <laughs> yeah, because if we did, man, maybe Putin would smile a little bit more. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's we, hard to smile when you don't believe there's a God. Right? Yeah. Kind of leads to depression. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It's a little bit humbling because anytime I'm like, this podcast is a lot of work. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not writing new languages. <laughs> right? Right? You definitely don't have to come up with that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's insane. But uh, idea, be, my mind is blown. Yeah, they were all about education. And the Bible even teaches that we're not to conform to the ways of the world, but we're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This helped preserve the truth of the Gospels, but also seeded into the minds of individual Christ followers that constantly thinking was a personal responsibility they had in serving Jesus. I love it, that. Yes, it's so good. At least part of the Bible has been translated over three into 3,000 languages. I mean, this is work wow. from people that are willing to activate their mind and continually think, Right. The whole Bible has mm -hmm. been translated into 704 languages, representing 5.7 billion people. I didn't know there were that many languages on the planet, dude. I didn't either. <laughs> 704. That's another bet I would have lost, hands down. <laughs> right. There's like, what, 10? <laughs> I was going to go 12 just to like be as far-reaching as I could. Okay. And okay. I was going to include Ebonics on that. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's, I mean, 704 different languages? Mm-hmm. That's got to include dead languages. Probably. And Still, it probably incorporates crazy. different particular dialects and things like that. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's still a wild idea. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because people bring up the Crusades a lot to show the villainy of Christianity, right? You always pick mm -hmm. the... The, the negative highlight reel, right? And then to right, assume right. that all of Christianity had been disseminated by bloodshed. Like this, this is a pretty common atheistic uh, accusation against Christianity, but it is not right. at all the case. The, the case, sorry. Despite the fact that it was paganism really under the guise of Christianity and that the Bible expressly prohibits the tactics used in the crusade, that's the first thing. The second is that the Crusades lasted less than 200 years and are just a tiny blip of time in the thousands of years that Christianity existed. Those are two phenomenal points. Yeah, we, we, we got to 
we got to get a real grasp of, of what that was and the impact that Christianity has had on the world. Well, see, that's the problem when you both control the press, uh-huh. you control the education, and you control the military. Yeah. <laughs> right? If, if, if you're the enemy and you get the military under the guise of Christian uh, expansion to do things that are actually against Christianity itself, and then you get the people to report on it, and then you get the educational system to teach the subsequent generations the faulty report that was based on a a a, a, um, a coup military. You got the game. Yeah. What do they call yeah. antennas? Game, set, match. Right. It's all done. <laughs> but we're still here. Still pushing. Because we're in pushing. a battle. We are. Trying to get to the truth that's been obscured. Right. And one of the other things that I that has been obscured is that education, you know, more than just teaching languages, but you fast forward a little bit, that 117 of the first 119 universities were founded by Christians in America. Well, I, I mean, remember uh, you mentioning the, that in like one of our original episodes. Yes, yes. And it blew my Go mind. Go way back. Cause, yep. Yeah, because you were talking about places like Harvard, uh, Oxford. You know, these were, well, I think not Oxford in our original one. I think it was like Harvard, Dartmouth, Yale. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the Ivy League schools. Right. I, I time, picked, they originally started out. Right, right. They started out as Christians. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut yeah. you off. No, but yeah, good. and I, the I said just. between us is crazy. Yeah, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. But it, it wasn't just in America. I misspoke. 117, the first 119 universities and the some of the first universities was is it is it pronounced we should have asked your your russian contact or cultural contact is it is it bologna Bologna. is it bologna because i almost say what i'm going with one of the first christian universities was bologna i'm like this this has got some pretty negative connotations (laughs) that's kind of funny I don't know, dude. I don't know if it's pronounced that way. I think it is, or or it's Bologna, but I don't think Bologna is the right way of pronouncing pronouncing it. Right, right. Well, it's spelled like baloney. So the university, the the University of Bologna, because we're not going to say baloney. <laughs> <laughs> Oxford and Paris. So these three universities actually spawned several sister schools, and it was the Christian schools that directly paved the way for the scientific revolution of the 16th and 17th centuries. Wow. Yes. We could not have had the scientific revolution if it was not for Jesus Christ. Let that sink in for a minute. Exactly. Even today, the top 15 universities were founded by Christians. Now, unfortunately, we know that they've been hijacked by the woke agenda. But nonetheless, they wouldn't exist at all if it wasn't for Jesus. Other aspects. saying something. It is. It is. Other aspects of our education, you know, if you benefited from an education as a child, you might want to thank Martin Luther and John Calvin. If you had access to education as a person with disabilities, you can thank Charles Michael de la Paix. If you received education in a foreign land, you can thank Frank Lombach, who traveled to over 100 countries, created primers in 313 languages, and developed a literacy literacy program that has been used to teach nearly 60 million to read 60 million people to read in their own languages. 
The Hindus and the Jews had a 2,000 year head start, and the Buddhists and the Zoroastrians had a 600 year jump on Christianity. But Christianity established more universities than all of them combined. Jesus actually matters. Wow. And then this, this touches on, this next section touches on the crap that you were saying before when you. <laughs> whoa, whoa. I take, I, I take exception to that. Why does it have to be crap? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm sorry. The, uh, when you briefly um, summarized the whole Don't try to whitewash this now. last half of the show. <laughs> Don't try to church it up. Dirt. <laughs> Oh, yeah. that's funny. Crap. But no, you were saying that it was it was the very idea of Jesus that the allowed pe- that allowed for the the scientific discovery, right? You just began right. to get into that when I kind of was laughing at you and cut you off. Um but one of the aspects of this that that led to scientific discovery was that matter is good, right? Christianity teaches that that God created the world and the world is in in essence a good thing, right? It's a, it's a gift. Now it sounds mm-hmm. ridiculous that this would have been um, an important aspect to practicing science, but it's crazy to realize that this was a uncommon thought in antiquity. Because Pythagoras thought that numbers, not matter, was the true nature of things. Heraclitus believed that everything in the universe was in flux, making matter impossible. Plato believed that form, such as beauty, was more real than matter itself. And Philo and the Gnostics believed that matter was the basis of evil. So you you can't, you're not going to generate a bunch of people investigating and learning and embracing the world around them if you're teaching that it's evil or it doesn't matter or it's not possible. I think the thing that we need to realize is that Christian theology made way um, made way for science itself, right? For, especially science as, as we know it today. So in the pagan world, beyond the, the examples that I gave, if you look at Thor and Zeus, you know, they were the cause of lightning. Poseidon and, and Neptune ruled the seas. So anything that was lightning or anything that the seas did was just attributed to a God being behind it. And it's interesting because this is one, the, the God of the gaps, right? That's what people say that, that Christianity is. It's just, you're using God to explain things until you figure out something else. But you weren't trying to explain things if you already thought you had the answer. What's the, um, what's that quote that you like to use all the time? I have no idea. About knowledge. One of the biggest hindrances to knowledge is the assumption that you already have it or something like that. That's it. Oh, that's it? Yeah. I was racking my brain, putting the notes together, going, this, what is the quote? And it, that ran through my head so many times. Like, I, I thought it was slightly different than that. Anyway, but yeah. So if people already thought that gods were behind something, there was no need to pursue trying to figure out, you know, a different answer. You know what I mean? I do. I'm trying to, now you got my mind working back on that quote. I think it's the barrier, the biggest barrier to truth is the assumption that you already have it. Right. Okay. But yeah, so that's yeah, my you point. Won't, you won't fall off. Okay. So yeah, if all of these pagan nations believe that they already had the answers, then why would there even have been a people group to do 
heretical sciences to disprove that gods were actually in control. You know what I mean? It's not a culture that would support that type of thinking. Oh, absolutely. And it really only comes into play when you're dealing with the Newtonian based culture. Okay. Okay. Right. When when we start talking about physics and we, we restrict physics to Newtonian physics instead of including quantum, Mm -hmm. then everything becomes about natural physical laws. In natural starting places. Okay. But Newtonian physics is situated underneath quantum physics. Quantum physics is a much larger um, field of study that's much broader than Newtonian physics. Okay. And it can account for more. Right. So the interesting thing is, if you're teaching people that the, that nature is all there is, and that the answer to things are only physical answers... But then behind the scenes, you're training elites to understand the fact that that's not entirely true because we're going to teach you to understand the quantum nature of reality, which will appeal to things that are not merely physical. And we'll treat those as legitimate answers for physical phenomena. Interesting. It puts the ball right back into the the spiritual world, right? Because now you're going to have to get into metaphysics. Okay. Yeah. Which is going to be beyond just regular physics. Right, right. And it's going to open up a a wonderful springboard right back into the very reality that the Bible sets up to begin with. And that these ancient pagan cultures tried to hijack and invert and twist to their own, through their own shenanigans, to their own ends. But yet and still, they're still playing in God's ballpark. Right. That's crazy. It is. Because, yeah, the Bible teaches that God made everything but is separate from his creation, right? Yep. So this opened the door to discovery because it wasn't a God behind the natural phenomena. Like you were saying, then what is behind the natural phenomena? So, you know, like, like we've been talking about, I'd say Christianity, like it or not, set free the ancient world from the bondage of ignorant paganism to the reality of God and the world that we actually live in. I agree. And this is how and why Christians pursued knowledge and education the way that they did. You know, just a glimpse of the impact Jesus had on the sciences shows a vast array of changes in physical sciences, medicine, mathematics, physics, and philosophy. John Philoponus, the Byzantine Christian philosopher, is known as the father of the Kalam cosmological argument. I've heard of that. Yeah. I didn't know he was the author of it. Right, right. Most of the oldest hospitals in the world aired from the efforts of Christian followers. To this day, the largest non-governmental provider of health services in the world is Jesus' followers. So we've talked before about the, the lie that belief in a higher power impedes science. And like you were saying, if we look at the awards given and the advancement in different fields, like the Nobel Prize, we've said in other episodes that a majority of Nobel Prize winners believe in a God, But Wallace fine-tunes that point and points out that 65.4% of Nobel Prize winners were, in fact, Jesus followers. That's crazy. Yes. Yes. I mean, all of these things just destroy the the barriers that pop atheists, you know, have put in place and the lies about Christianity and the pursuit of knowledge. It's, It's crazy to me. Men and women who founded the disciplines in physics, chemistry, biology, cosmology, and the quantum mechanics and quantum mechanics 
all believed that Jesus was real, he performed miracles, and he rose from the dead. That's nuts. Right? You don't find that nowadays. You know, for a person who has advanced degrees in any of those areas, for them to profess Jesus Christ as Lord is a miracle in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Because by the time you normally work through the course loads of, of these various disciplines in these secular institutions, it grinds out the idea of, of there being a God in it, Jesus being the divine representative. Yeah. It's crazy to think then that men and women who founded those disciplines actually started with a belief in Jesus. Yeah. A strong belief. Mm-hmm. And not just that he existed, but he performed miracles and rose from the grave. Like, I mean, really understood and believed who he was. It's, it's nuts. Right. Because all of that flies in the face of a, of, of scientific naturalism. It does. Which is the predominant underlining worldview philosophy taught in our schools today. Mm-hmm. You know, that nature, five senses, all of that is all there is. Right. So there's no such thing as miracles. There's no such thing as reversing biological processes and you rising from the dead. That doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Just as crazy would be the idea of a virgin birth. Right. <laughs> Yet the people who really were, 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 um, the folk who move this forward and pioneers in these areas, they believe the exact opposite. It's just so crazy to see how juxtapose where this started versus where it's at now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the only thing that, uh, the only thing that accounts for that vast switcheroo is the person of Jesus Christ. Yes. It's it. That's what it's all situated on. Mm -hmm. Like you said earlier, I mean, I was sold last week when you were like time itself (laughs) <laughs> has changed because Jesus Christ showed up. Like, I don't think you need another episode after that. <laughs> like, we arranged time as in before this dude showed up and after this dude showed up. Yep, yep. That's it. Like, that's wild. You talk about having an impact. Right. I, d- I don't think that can, it can be overstated. And it's so much different than they're teaching kids in schools today. It's sad. Exactly. Exactly. But we got we got one more. Okay. So Jay Warner Wallace calls this the exaltation fallout. And this one, this one had me almost falling out of my truck, right? Well, it seems like that's the right, the right name then. <laughs> yes. But he talks about the effect that Jesus had on other religions. And I had never even heard this talked about that it was an idea. It, it was crazy. How did Jesus impact the religions that already existed, right? Because we know it impacted Mm -hmm. people and thought, but other belief systems completely blew my mind. So, Hinduism, even though Hinduism began long before Jesus, they acknowledged Jesus as a divine sadhu, which is a a teacher. Is that how you say it? I think it's sadhu. Uh, I don't know. I've never heard that word. Okay. But they affirm many gospel events, but they claim that in his early years, the time not documented in the Bible that Jesus went to India and learned the ways of yoga to become a sadhu teacher. Interesting. Oh, that's convenient. Right. So they're kind of such, such an incredible impact that this, I mean, poor dude didn't have a place to stay, died at 33 years old, that these established religions are now going, oh, he's one of us. He's part of us. 
We, we, Next, the Egyptians are going to claim them. <laughs> I don't know if Egyptians are on here, but but we'll we'll get into a, little, a few more. Well, I'm just saying he actually did go to Egypt. Yeah. Oh, that's true. To be protected from hair. Right. So if there was ever going to be a, a group that would claim him, I would expect the Egyptians to be like, hey, this is one of our guys. Right. You know, that's why he came here. Oh, that that's Even interesting. Scripture teaches that's definitely not why he went there. <laughs> right, right. But no, that's interesting. But if we uh, if we look at Addis, Addis was worshipped by the Greeks beginning about 1250 BC. Originally, there was no account of Addis's body not decaying, but by the second century, that is after Jesus, Addis seemed to gain this ability, and this change was borrowed from Acts two thirty one that said, "Nor did his body see decay." Another, Interesting. Yeah. Another addition to second century Addis was a purification rite of rebirth, symbolizing that Addis was a God who had died and resurrected. Again, borrowing from Jesus. No, 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 no. We get accused of tinkering our text. <laughs> right. We get accused of, of completely rehashing these old Babylonian narratives. Mm-hmm. But here, clearly, you've got examples. Right. And I'm sure you've got some more. Oh, yeah. But current but, examples where somebody licked the quill and was like, that's wrong. Let me scratch that out real quick. <laughs> and uh, never decayed. Right. Is that right, Sam Ballot? Never decayed? We got it. Yeah, it's updated. <laughs> that's funny. So th- another one that I have is Heracles. Or we know him as Hercules, but his, his original name was Heracles. So he was a divine hero in Greek mythology. The earliest stories of Heracles show him in a morally questionable way, right? He had multiple he had multiple marriages and affairs, questionable killings, having many children out of wedlock. Like he just, you know, wasn't wasn't the guy that you wanted to invite over for dinner. He lived a healthy life. <laughs> But again, yeah, we to the fullest. <laughs> again, we see in the second century. Once the story of Jesus spread, the story of Heracles changed as well. Heracles then became the paragon of virtue and fit many of the characteristics of Jesus. In the second century, he was called the Logos, infused in all things. A clear parallel from John and Paul's description of who Jesus was. A right. new story of Her- Heracles walking on water and not getting wet emerges after Jesus shows up. Julian also yeah. described the relationship of Jupiter, Athena, and Heracles as a divine triad. This closely resembled the Trinity. All of these change- changes happen after Jesus shows up. Wait, Jupiter, Athena, and Heracles? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't Jupiter be the father of Heracles? Probably. So that'd be Father God, this, Mother God, that's Son what it of looks God. Like. And Mother of God. Right. But Julian described the relationship as a divine triad. So it, it's trying to codify the distortion of the Trinity, I think is is what it is. I got that. Okay. It just also seems like it's a father God, mother God, son of God set up now as well. Right. Right. Uh, that's wild. So Krishna, this one was interesting. Once Krishna worshipers were exposed to the story of Jesus, instead of Krishna being one of a pantheon of gods, he became elevated to the sole deity. They now tell that Krishna was born of a virgin and a tyrant ordered the killing of innocent infants. Krishna's hmm. birth looks much like the nativity of Jesus in a stable surrounded by shepherds. Krishna was also modified into a herdsman. 
Krishna now was said to have achieved victory over a demon similar to Satan. Then, all the way into the 13th century, Krishna was said to have raised a dead son to life. All of these changes happened after Jesus showed up. And again, those are going to be used as fodder to, to, to levy the attack against Christianity that we borrow from ancient sources. Right, right. But all of these ancient sources had to shift their narrative to meet the truth that was Jesus Christ. Fascinating. Yeah. Mithras. The original Persian version of Mithras was quite different from the virgin version <laughs> that we have now. Believers in Mithras, after being exposed to the truth of Jesus, now believe that they can gain eternal life through blood sacrifice. And they even design their own communion ceremony. Oh, that's convenient. Uh-huh. Buddhism has also recognized the importance of Jesus, but instead of adopting ideas of Jesus, they have adopted Jesus altogether, saying that he is a Buddhistava who is an enlightened teacher that forges or foregoes nirvana because of his compassion for other people. They make Jesus and his model of sacrificial life, sacrificial life key, a key to happiness. Mm, that's a huge doctrinal shift. Yeah. Because it used to be the key was to achieve nirvana. Right. Fascinating. It's, it's insane. So it's interesting because in our last episode, we touched on the idea of Jesus being a copycat God, right? Yep. But we highlighted that it's more plausible that all of those other gods are actually copying Jesus, even though they showed up on the stage, at least on the physical stage, before Jesus Christ did. But I think that seeing... Uh, these same religions change again and become more like Jesus after he showed up in the flesh confirms the idea that they were copycats from the very beginning. Every religion and deity from before and after Jesus was trying to copy and be like the most high. Jesus, however, hmm. hasn't changed. He's a one way influencer. Not a single detail of Jesus has been altered to adhere to any other religion. Now, religions taken, they try to adopt varied versions of Jesus, but that's not, that's not the same thing. Like New Age, you know, Jesus really said that you were the, like you, th that's, that's completely different. And that has nothing to do with, with Christianity. It's just co complete nonsense. But we aren't the only ones who think that Jesus and Christianity is different. Look at Alice Bailey, you know, the New Age and their tolerance crusade that's actually in vague at the moment. They want acceptance of all religions and tolerance of all lifestyles, except what? Except for that of Jesus and those that follow him. No matter how you slice it and dice it, there is a very significant difference between Jesus and thinking believers than any other religion. Right. By the nature of Jesus's existence, he is a hostile force to the false gods. It's, I love it. I think it's fantastic. And there's so much. This is crazy. It is. It is. And there's so much more to the reality of Jesus than, than what the Western church has led us to believe. I almost feel let, let down a little bit. Like I knew that I ha had trouble getting answers as a youngster, but now I'm like, dang, like it's far, a far cry from where we need to be. There is an agenda to discredit and dismantle the entire Christian idea.
The reason it's taking so long, the reason they haven't been 100% successful yet is because of the global fallout that Jesus' life had on the entire world. They don't have a monopoly on the entire world just yet. I mean, they're working on it. But this is why Jesus' message is still able to get out and be circulated because he impacted not just a small people group, but the world. That being said, they're not backing down though. We need to take up personal responsibility for knowledge and push back against this world-destroying lie. Because if we aren't as savvy as they are, if we don't know our stuff, like Jay Warner Wallace has pointed out in this book, then when we try to tell people how important Jesus really is, then all they're going to end up hearing is this. And that is the sound of defeat. Like that right there means you don't need to be talking on a global stage because you obviously don't have anything worthwhile to add. And everything we've been talking about today, bro, is the fact that the God that we serve, the principal entity of our entire system of faith and our entire system of knowledge and understanding that produces the faith that we have is based on a person that actually impacted every fiber of existence and human society. This is huge. Absolutely. You know, this this blows everything out of the water because it shows that belief in a higher power and trust in Jesus doesn't hinder one's progress through life. It doesn't hinder scientific discovery. It it doesn't hinder artistic expression. It doesn't hinder education. It doesn't hinder experiencing life to its fullest degree. Mm -hmm. Because what we're dealing with is the reality, the impact of Jesus's life, death and resurrection actually propelled the world into a new era of knowledge. Yes. Yes, something that the world absolutely needed, right? Because this was a key moment in the interdimensional cosmic battle, right? Mm -hmm. This battle that had been raging for eons, it came to a head right here with Jesus stepping foot on the planet. Now, you got to imagine he steps foot on and he, he hits everybody in the spiritual world with, sup? <laughs> and like, yeah. oh crap, it's him. Mm-hmm. And everybody starts running wild. And in 33 years, he overturns everything that they had spent millennia trying to put into play. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Because the battle is both for him and about him. Yes. And the key thing to understand is that it's a battle. If you have this notion that you are safe, that things are going pretty smooth, you don't have Gestapo kicking in your door. You're not having to go to the gulag to go hang out because you talked about Jesus Christ. You're not having to go to slave camps. You're not having to work in internment camps. You're not going to death camps because you profess the name of Christ. Since it's not that bad, things are pretty good. You have bought into a false reality overlay. And since you have that, after listening to us for the last umpteen minutes, far be it for us to think that we could dissuade you from that. (laughs) We obviously are not gifted in the ability to help recalibrate and swivel your mind. So because of that, 
we have to turn you over to our Sergeant Major, Miles Cortek, who will help cultivate a healthy mental aptitude because you might be thinking that you are safe on the back hills of Kansas when the reality is you are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora, ladies and gentlemen. Respect that fact every second of every day. Out there beyond that fence, every living thing that crawls, flies, or squats in the mud wants to kill you and eat your eyes for jujubes. If you wish to survive, you need to cultivate a strong mental attitude. You've got to obey the rules. You've got to obey the rules. And rule number one is educate yourself. We actually have, despite since the 1920s, a long, long history of Christ followers that educated themselves, that sharpened and fine-tuned the machine that was their mind. And we need to, to fall in line with that. And it starts with knowing what Scripture tells us. So Scripture tells us that we are to take Jesus to all creation. And we touched on this before, but it's Mark 16, 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And it might sound crazy, but like we were saying earlier, that could mean restructuring the notation of music and correcting it to its original design to have the necessary impact on people that are listening. Crazy stuff. Yeah. And we don't know where else that needs done. I mean, up until this episode, I didn't even know it needed done with music. So just think, right? we we can take the gospel, preach the gospel to all of creation, take the the logical mindset, the the intellectual prowess, the order and the design of Jesus Christ, and 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 try to stay the the decay and the corruption that is throughout the world. It's, it's exciting stuff. Like I, I've, I'm, I'm pumped up for it. I got, I got a new energy now. I'm like, what things can I bring the Christ-like order to? Don't, right. don't say my home first. That's, that's a conversation for a different time. <laughs> that, that, that's where it starts. It is, though. It all it starts is. with us. Yeah, it all yeah. starts at home. It starts in our personal life. I mean, you're, you're spot on. It starts yeah. with us before it starts with the other person. Right, right. Scripture warns us of the vain philosophy and the traditions of men. So this, after this episode, this rings true. This rings, yeah, rings true a little bit different. So it's Colossians 2.8. See that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And if you hear that in Sunday school or whatever, okay, you know, the whole elemental spiritual forces kind of goes under the radar and, you know, vain traditions. But look at, look at how we outline this thing today, that Jesus was so vitally and in some ways tragically impactful all over the world. So they really are vain and hollow, deceptive philosophies that keep, that keep you trapped by a mentality that isn't freed by the reality of Jesus Christ and the reality of the universe that you live in and the hope for a future. Like it's, you see it a, a completely different way after reading Jay Warner right. Wallace's book. It, it's, it's crazy. Yep. Scripture anticipates 
the fallout of Jesus. This is one of my favorite passages. Uh, Psalms 22, 27. All of the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Because of what happened, because of what this poor carpenter did, people of every nation are going to worship the God of Israel. I am one of those people from another nation now worshiping the God of Israel because what happened on the cross. That, that's amazing to me. That's dope. It is. It is. And look at all of the ground that was able to be taken by this one event. But we can't be laxed and give it back up. And then that takes us to rule number two. Exactly. The second rule of engagement is you don't cede any ground to your enemy. But that raises a problem for most people, Christopher. And that is, how do you identify your enemy? How do you fight against what you can't see? Mm. How do you engage what you don't know is there? How do you counteract a threat you don't perceive? You need discernment. You have to be able to identify your enemy before you can engage him. And if you're under this notion where you think that you don't have an enemy, you've been most deceived. Identifying your enemy is key. Ultimately, this battle that we are in will end when Jesus takes full authority and enforces his reign on the neck and throat of his enemy. But until then, we are here to impose incremental judgment on the forces of darkness. And we do that by following the biblical counteroffensive strike package. You expose the works of your enemy. You oppose everything that he is doing. And when you find it, when you resist it, you take the third and final step and you tear it down. You take every argument, every pretension that sets itself up against what God has said is true. If we're talking education, you start dealing with the educational notions that exalt themselves against God. If we're talking art, you start dealing with the artists and the things they put out that are completely antithetical to scripture. If we're dealing with music, you look at the musical tracks that you were listening to and what you are taking in and the people that produced it. If we're talking film, you look at what you watch. You take all of these areas and you bring them under, under full subjection to the authority of Christ. That is how you identify your enemy and you don't see ground. But in order to do that, you have to execute the third rule of engagement well. 
And that's you have to pray like it's all up to God, but you got to work like it's all up to you. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the things that I think that we should pray about. One, I think we've got to repent for being ignorant about all of this stuff before. Because this is this is a big thing to miss. And we're we're on one hand, we're the victim. On the other hand, we're we're guilty with it a certain respect. You know? Right. So yeah, that that's the first thing. Two, I think that we should ask God to lead us to the things that he wants us to study. I think God pointed us in the direction of this book for sure. But I know this isn't the only thing he wants us to study. So it's studying is good, but directed Holy Spirit directed study is even better. And then three, I think we should pray for boldness when confronted with accusations against Christ. Now we're armed. Now we've got something to push back with. We've got to be bold and especially a Holy Spirit type of Christ energized boldness to not back down when, when, when when we see these things that need addressed. So when it comes to work, no, go ahead. I was going to say one of the things I think we can add to that, when especially when it comes to boldness, mm-hmm. is realizing that that's such a that's such a critical and necessary mentality and characteristic for us to have. And I think about Jesus Christ literally setting foot on this planet as a human being, having to relearn who he was. Do you ever think there was a moment where he was a little nervous? I mean, if you suffer from, I wonder what people think about me if I do. X, Y, and Z. He had 12 dudes with him that weren't quite (laughs) certain that he was who he said he was, right? So I'm already a little nervous, like, what if I get out here and this doesn't work? Secondly, you've got a pantheon of evil spirits that are ready to try you on any and every level, any and every moment. Even the, the, the prince of darkness, when he approached Jesus, approached him with a doubting question. You know, if you are who you say you are, I mean, I don't know. You, I thought you'd be taller, personally. <laughs> you know, but here you are claiming to be the son of God. I mean, okay, we'll go with it. But I mean, can you even turn these stones into bread, player? Can, can you? <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm just wondering. Mm-hmm. You said you was the son of God. I mean, go on ahead and jump off. You right. know, the Bible said he'll make sure your feet don't touch the, they don't get dashed on the rocks. And I know how you people, since you claim to be the son of God, I know how y'all like worship. I give you all the worship you want. You can have worship with umbrella drinks and dirty naked freaks. I got you. All you <laughs> got to do is bow the knee. Right? Imagine being that surrounded in a hostile environment and that attacked that accosted and you have to stand your ground. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things we could pray for is actually that Jesus gives us the same boldness that he had when he was on the planet. Oh, I like that. That's dope. I think it's so important, man. Yeah, I would agree. You know, give us what you had so that we can do what you did. Right. Right. And even push on to greater works, which is what the Bible said we would be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's going to take a greater degree of boldness. That's a good point. And I think we absolutely need that. Mm-hmm. What's something that we can do, man? Because you were about to hit the work section. I was. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I can't reiterate enough that um, we have a legacy of Christians pushing the bounds of knowledge and care for our fellow man. 
So we can't live in a hole. If we got, especially if we got that boldness, right? We got the study. Right. We got the boldness. We got the answered prayers. We got to go out. We, you, we've got to do all we can and not just sit on our couch and waste it. You know, what is the, the, um, the saying? Don't let them put potential on your tombstone. Oh, never heard that. Yeah. Yeah. That hurts. <laughs> it does a little bit. You can have uh-huh. all the potential of the world, but if you aren't going out in it, it doesn't mean anything. That do, doesn't do you any good. Right. Right. The second thing I think that people can do, and this is a relatively easy one for, for anyone that might have some extra time, is read the book, Person of Interest. Like our episodes might have been interesting, but it's, it's a brief fly through of the work that Jay Warner Wallace did. Mm-hmm. And um, this is probably one of the most reader friendly books. Anyone in our Patreon will be able to, to look and see. We took some of the, the illustrations to, to help explain our highlights, but he does an excellent job of illustrating the fuse and the fallout and, you know, letting you see and the, the, the infographs have so much more information. It's a, it's a great read and there's so much more information in there than what we had time to cover on our podcast. So that's a, a great thing that you can do as far as work. Right. Um, outside of that, thank you everyone for sharing the show. It, it, I mean, I'm almost speechless. Like the, the growth that we're seeing is just fantastic. When we started, there was like two people listening to us. It was just Jason and I. We wondered if yeah, that was the only two people. <laughs> right. We wondered if that was as big as we were going to get. And right. s- such the, the, the feedback from other people that listen and other podcasters, it's just, it's so humbling. It's, it's, it's amazing to see what God is doing and what you are doing by sharing the show. I really appreciate, we really appreciate it. We do. And the interactions we get like on Instagram on a, on a daily basis are absolutely amazing. Whether it's people sending us, uh, sending us reels or people giving us new information, like, Hey, go check this out. Or people just commenting, you know, I heard when you were talking about this in one of your other shows, Hey, check this out. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, that was a really interesting idea. I hadn't thought about that. Like that stuff just fuels you and keeps you going. Right. It absolutely does. I love does. getting those comments, man. I, I love responding back. I love shooting those over to Christopher. Like, you're not going to believe what they said. Right. <laughs> yeah, it never you gets know, old. It, it, it doesn't. It, it feels good because it reminds us, as much as we say we're in a battle, it reminds us that there are rewards mm-hmm. that happen while you're still fighting. Some of the right. rewards is just helping other people out. Or people yeah. are like, man, your show. There's one dude we were talking to recently. He was like, man, your show just comes in clutch. I think it was Hank. Yeah. From yeah. Uh, what was that six four three conspiracy? You remember yeah. the name of the? Yep. He was like, man, just your guys' show comes in super clutch, and I was like, man, that's a heck of a compliment. Right. Right. Like I really appreciate that because you never know what somebody's going through. You don't know what questions they've had. You don't know what challenges they've had. You don't know how close they are to giving up in frustration because they haven't gotten a question answered. And then you put out an episode and a person's like, that's exactly the question I had. Mm -hmm. And it just, it helps. So we wouldn't know any of that if people weren't getting a hold of us. So really appreciate that. People that drop us show ideas, love it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's just growing into a community and it's way more than what Christopher and I, you know, I think it's way more bro than what we ever imagined. For sure. For sure. Another thing that gets me charged up that or gets us charged up is when people join our Patreon. 
That is fun. We gained two more operators here recently. Yes. Bill yes. and Kimberly. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I, I really hope that you you get everything out of it that, that you're looking for. Because we yes. we love it. We love having you be an operator. And it, it's so exciting to see those things. For, for Super any, cool. Yeah. For anyone else that's interested, you can find us at patreon.com slash ORP podcast. And we got three tiers. So you can get in on the ground level, provide cover fire. As a tier one operator, it's five bucks a month, and you'll get all the links and resources we use to make an episode, as well as full-length versions and any bonus episodes that we might have. If you want a little bit more, you can get in our Overwatch tier. Our tier two operators are seven dollars a month. Gives you everything in tiers one or in tier one, as well as the actual studio notes that we looked at to run the episode. Little inside jokes, uh, stuff that we didn't have a chance to cover. It's a good kind of backstage, behind-the-scenes look at, at what, we, what we're doing here at ORP. And if you want all that you can get, our third tier, Bring the Rain, Tier 3 Operators, 10 bucks a month, gets you everything in the first two tiers, as well as the opportunity to join a monthly Zoom call with both Jason and I. And those are always a good time. Always fantastic. Yep, looking forward to this month's call because it's going to be great. Yes, yes, absolutely. But here's the last thing that you can do. Remind yourself of what scripture tells us, which is we are never alone and we're not fighting alone. God has promised to never leave us and we have a community of believers all over the world and a loving God who actually intervenes on our behalf. We can see all through history, he has been intervening on our behalf in such a way that the world cannot reject or refute the reality of, of him intervening. And that's an amazing thing because one day we will be at the epicenter of this global fallout. One day we will get to know all of the details of Christ's impact on creation from the man himself. One day we won't be putting together a nobody homicide case. We will be with our person of interest face to face. But until then, we are deployed to this dystopian rock by our Savior-in-Chief, the very one that's commissioned us on a seesaw. That's right. We're on a combat search and rescue mission here, people. And be advised, the hostages we're after are likely to be hostile towards us. But you know what? We still gotta go get them. Now, our task and order is simple. We're to search for and rescue anyone that can be sympathetic to Christ, but is currently held hostage under Satan's deception. And make no mistake, we will be operating in a hostile environment, but the rules of engagement are clear. Listen to me, you take fire, we expect you to give fire. And I need you to keep your head on a swivel out there. You stay frosty, stay faithful, and above all, stay in the fight. That means do not give up, because we're counting on you. You ain't alone out there. We're fighting right next to you, and we'll see you out there again fighting on the front line. 10-4.